If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Matthew 21. Our King has come. Today is the day that is characteristically called in church tradition Palm Sunday. It's called Palm Sunday because historically, we believe that uh, Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the final time in the week prior to his crucifixion. And when he entered in that final time, he did so, we'll talk about today, with a measure of fanfare, characterized by palm branches being laid before him, an entrance which is historically understood to be called the triumphal entry. And today I'd like to discuss that account Perhaps in a slightly different perspective, or with a slightly different perspective uh, than you've thought about in the past. The account in question is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke primarily parallel as it relates to their accounts, uh, each with a different purpose. Uh, Matthew particularly being written from a Jewish perspective intended to argue for or um, intended to, to defend the fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Luke is the historical gospel. He was a historian. We find that one paired with the book of Acts and thus gives the historical chronological perspective on Jesus' life, ministry, and then the start of the early church. Uh, Mark is a little bit different still. Uh, um, typically speaking, if you look in some sort of uh, book, they'll say that, that it emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant. Um, I have not come to my own conclusion as to why Mark was written. I haven't quite figured that out yet as far as my own study. Um, so Jesus is the suffering servant, and I'm good with that until... Uh, um, until something that makes a little bit more sense resonates with me. Uh, um, I haven't really figured out Mark yet. But anyway, Mark, uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 are where we find this triumphal entry. It is Matthew's account, as I asked you to turn to, where we will focus our attention this morning. And in Matthew chapter 21, the first 11 verses, we read this. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And the very great multitude spread out their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, so Jesus and his disciples are drawing nigh unto Jerusalem in the days just prior to the Passover feast that would signify the end of Jesus' first advent, his, his, his first time upon this earth. Jesus commands the disciples to go into a village across the way, and there they would find a colt, a young male donkey, tied up next to his mother. And this Matthew account, we find that Jesus instructs them to loose both the mother 
and the colt and to bring them to Jesus. You notice in verse two, if you have your King James Bible with you, that it says, loose them and bring them unto me. And the them there is in italics. That italics means that that word is not in the original Greek, that it is a word that is provided by the translators. However, if you go down a little bit farther in verse three, it says, and if, any man, and if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, the Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. There, there are not italics because those words are provided in the Greek. And that is why the King James translators felt comfortable providing them in verse 2. Now, this is a difference from the Mark and the Luke passage where they focus only upon the cult and they speak of only the cult. They do not say them, they say it. Speaking of the cult, Matthew provides us a little bit more information that both the cult and his mother were brought on this day. And Jesus' objective in doing so, he says, is to fulfill a prophecy. Jesus fulfilled numerous prophecies within the scope of his ministry, and this is one of the ones that he sought to fulfill directly, that prophecy being in Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, where we read this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And I will cut off... Uh, the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. So in the prophecy, Zechariah sees the king coming and he sees him coming in meekness and not in war sitting upon this colt. But notice also verse 10. That in this day, he says, the chariot and the bow would be cut off from Jerusalem and from Ephraim, speaking both of that southern tribe of Judah, as well as anticipation of that northern, uh, the northern tribes of Israel being there at this time, Ephraim being representative quite often of the northern ten tribes that became the northern tribes of, of Israel. For those of you that are in the Amos series, you, uh, you were, were primed on that last week on our Sunday evening series. And this king, the Bible says, would speak peace not just to Israel, but also to the Gentile world, and that his dominion would be throughout the whole earth. So this promise of the king's entrance into Jerusalem was characterized by his entrance in peace and not in war. And this peace would not just be in Jerusalem, but would be extended to the whole earth. Now think through this with me. Jesus explicitly told his disciples to get this cult, specifically that he could fulfill this prophecy, that he would enter into Jerusalem, that he would claim peace for his people. But then as we continue, we find that the disciples did as Jesus commanded. The mother and the colt are brought, clothes are put on, Jesus is put on the colt. And the text says that a multitude came in, and yet what he ushered in in this time would actually be rejected by his people. The people lay the garments on the ground. Others cut branches down from the trees, lie them in the way. And this was, and indeed still is in most cultures, a sign of welcome, a sign of honor. We call it today rolling out the red carpet. We still have a very similar idea or a similar tradition that when a red carpet is rolled out, the rolling out of the red carpet, laying down a path upon which a person could walk, expresses culturally not just that you are welcoming the person, but that you are honoring their arrival, paving the way for them, if you will. And this was what the laying down of the garments and the placing of the branches on the ground were to signify. The multitude in agreement that Jesus was their king 
in agreement that Jesus was in fact fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. And we know this, not only because they laid down their palms and their coats before him, but because as Jesus passed by, they cried something very important, and not just important, but also very specific. The Bible tells us in Matthew 21, verse 9, And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Are we saying uh, four, four hymns today, as we characteristically do on a Sunday morning? And within two of those hymns, there was a word hallelujah. That word hallelujah is Hebrew. It means praise ye the Lord or praise you Jehovah. It is a call one to another that we would, that we would praise the Lord together. Hosanna is another such call, this time meaning O save, a cry of desire for salvation, an acknowledgement that Jesus was the way to that salvation, that he was that king who was riding into Jerusalem to bring salvation to his people. Now, the multitudes were, were without, a, without question thinking of this as a physical salvation from the enemies and their conquerors as Zechariah presented it in Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. In this case, of course, their conqueror was the Roman Empire. And as we continue through the text, we find that they were not necessarily wrong in thinking so that Jesus makes promises unto that effect. But we have clarity in the point that what Jesus is doing here is claiming to be Messiah and offering peace on earth, this multitude assenting unto his claim and recognizing that he is the way to salvation, saying that Jesus has come in the name of the Lord. And this is also a prophetic cry. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This is biblically prophetic. This one we find in Psalm 118. In verses 19 through 29, the Bible says this in Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of, the, of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the head stone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Notice what verses 25, I'm sorry, we finished there in 29. This is back to 25 and 26. Beseech, uh, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Notice these verses, verses 25 and 26. And in them we read these phrases which the multitudes cried. First, save now I beseech thee. That's Hosanna. And then second, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, verbatim here. These phrases are couched in this psalm of deliverance in the psalm of blessing, and in the psalm of victory. Also, it is important to note, in the context, we also see that idea, the stone which the builders refused, the same has become the head of the corner. Jesus, Paul, and Peter 
would all reference this concept of Jesus being that cornerstone several times as indicative of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. And I'm going to touch on this prophetic link just briefly, but let's just say that if you wanted to chase down some very fascinating biblical truths, I would encourage you to meditate upon the connection between the events of Jesus' final days and Psalm 118. And it would be a very profitable study for you. So we see that the people are crying out the words of Psalm 118. And they are watching as Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9, and 10. Matthew tells us that a very great multitude were crying these things. And we do not have a direct number given to that multitude. But I do want you to take note that while we see this idea of a great multitude, we can have it in our minds that this triumphal entry, because we call it the triumphal entry, because maybe you've seen those flannel graphs where a bunch of people were were there as Jesus was doing this thing. We have it in our minds, perhaps, that, that Jerusalem was receiving Jesus as their king, but that is absolutely not the case here. There was a great multitude. Luke calls it a great multitude of their disciples, of his disciples, but this was not the majority. This was not the plurality of people that were receiving him in this way. How do we know that? Well, remember what we read in verses 10 and 11 of Matthew 21. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? To which the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Not only did, was the city not all there to receive Jesus, the city didn't even know who the guy was. Who is this guy? What's he doing here? It was not a grand reception of the people. It was a grand reception of the multitudes that followed him. That the, the exact number, we do not know how many. But this is important. The city looked at this event and they said, who is this guy and what is he doing? The multitude was not the nation. It was not the vast majority of the nation. In that sense, it was triumphal in that it was the, the, the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, but in another sense, it certainly wasn't the triumph that we would imagine. certainly was not the reception that we would imagine for a people to their king. And indeed, we know why. Because most of Jerusalem had not accepted him as their king. So Jesus fulfills the prophetic sign of Zechariah 9.9. The multitude of disciples acknowledge it to be so. They are crying Psalm 118, connecting him prophetically with the idea, O save and blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus then goes into the temple. He casts out the money changers. And then notice what happens in Matthew 21, verse 15. The Bible says, When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of, of David, they were sore displeased. The disciples are still crying Hosanna to the son of David. They are connecting Jesus to the prophecies of Psalm 118, to the fact that he is David's seed, to the one that would sit on the throne of David. And the chief priests and scribes do not like this. Most of the city has moved on. They saw what happened. They didn't really understand what had happened. They asked what happened. They were answered, and they have moved on. The chief priests and the scribes are now uh, not very happy. So that Jesus' triumphal entrance, though deeply significant, was not only disregarded, but we find that by the vast majority, it was, in fact, rejected. Verse 
And we know this to be so because from this point on, if we were to continue reading in Matthew, what we would read about is Jesus' teachings on rejection of authority and the consequences of a people who reject their king. Even going so far as to quote Psalm 118 in Matthew 21, verses 42 and 43, he says, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Interesting, is it not? Jesus comes in with the triumphal entry, and his disciples are crying, Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the chief priests and scribes hear the disciples in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The chief priests and the scribes know where that comes from. They know it comes from Psalm 118. They're not ignorant. And then as Jesus begins to rebuke them for their rejection of him, he says, let's go back to Psalm 118 for a minute. You are there too. The stone has been rejected, right? And that stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. So Jesus announces that the nation has thus rejected him. And because the nation has rejected him, the plan has changed. That the offer which was given by which they would receive the kingdom would now be taken from them and given to another. Speaking of the church, who will become inheritors of the Holy Ghost by grace through faith on the day of Pentecost and then rule and reign with Christ in his kingdom one day. You say, well, pastor, does that mean that God is finished with Israel? Many think so. We at Legacy Baptist Church do not. Within the scope of our interpretive method and supported particularly by the teachings of Paul in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we are confident that God still has a plan for the physical seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for the nation of Israel. And that fullness of that discussion is for another place and another time. But Jesus came, he presented himself as the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9. A small subset of people received it, most did not, and Jesus was ultimately rejected as the king of Israel at this time. His triumphal entry gave way to the rejection that would lead to the crucifixion that we think about toward the end of this week, and thus the resurrection that we celebrate one week from now. Jesus announced... What would then become of the church? This new people made up not of one lineage, but of all nations, of all tribes, of all tongues, into a group that would receive the kingdom with gladness. But the story was not over yet. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And after that rebuke, Jesus says something, and this is actually what I want to focus on this morning. Picking up in Matthew 23, verse 33, the Bible says this. Jesus says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and uh, persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, Unto the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barachias, whom he slew between the temple and the altar. 
Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Notice what Jesus says here. First, Jesus rebukes the leaders of Israel for rejecting him as the climax, in, in a sense, of God's prophets. From generation to generation, the nation had been stiff-necked. And because of this, Jesus says that the blood of the prophets would be required of that generation. Jesus then laments for Jerusalem, asking how often he would have gathered them together as he had always promised to do, but he could not do so because they would not have it so. He was unable because they were unwilling. And for this reason, he says, the house of Israel would be left desolate for a time. But notice this final verse. He still says unto them, at this time, I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus says that there's still coming a day when Israel will say those very words to him. You say, well, pastor, I thought that that already happened. Isn't that what the disciples said when, they entered the, when he entered the city on the colt? Yes, that is what his disciples said. He said that now to Israel, there's still coming a day when you will say unto me, Blessed is he that cometh. In the name of the Lord, promising that there is yet a day where Jesus will come for his people, for the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he comes for them the next time, they will finally receive him unto themselves. There's coming a day where Israel will receive her king. Paul saying in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. So that we believe that he still has a plan for the nation of Israel. But what I want us to think about in the remainder of our time today is the implication of this idea upon our own lives. In John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, verse 12 says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. For the majority that are under the sound of my voice this morning, you are among those who have come to, the, to faith in Jesus Christ. You have acknowledged his power and his authority in heaven and upon earth. We echo that prayer of our Savior, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There are perhaps those today who have never come to that place in your own lives, where you've never recognized that you are separated from God through your own sin where you've never come to the place where you understand that that separation from God means that if you were to die right now, you could not spend eternity with him in heaven, but rather you would spend eternity in a place of separation from him, a place of conscious torment known as the lake of fire. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have sinned, I have sinned, and because of that sin, that sin has brought separation. For the wages of sin is death. 
The idea of death in the Bible is not just physically dying. It's not just the idea that my heart stops beating and I stop breathing. But the idea of death is a separation. It is something that goes well beyond just the physical and actually roots itself in the spiritual. That God made us in his image as spiritual beings. And as spiritual beings, we have an eternal spirit. And that eternal spirit is going to spend eternity somewhere. But if I am lost in my sin, if I am living in a manner that is is outside of Christ, then I am separated from God. And that separation has condemned me to eternity separated from him. And this is very bad news. See, because I can't work my way, I can't earn my way back into a right relationship with God. If I were standing before a judge today because I had done something wrong and that judge looks at me and says, Mr. Wickler, I see that you're guilty. And I say, well, yes, your honor, I'm guilty. However, I've done a lot of good things in my life. I've helped little old ladies across the street. I've given to charity. I've been kind to people. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Shouldn't my good outweigh my bad? Well, if that judge is anything like just, they will say, I'm sorry, sir, you are not here on trial for what you've done good. You're here because you've done wrong. And there's no amount of good that I do that can undo the bad that I have done. There's no amount of right that I can do that can undo the wrong. Therefore, I am already guilty. I must already pay the price. The price that God has said is eternal separation from God so that I can't earn my way to God. I can't work my way to God. I can't uh, do anything to be right with God. Baptism isn't going to get me right with God. Giving money to the church, coming to church is not going to get me right with God. I need something else. I need someone to pay for my sin, the sin that I cannot pay for myself. So the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. As we sang this morning, his robes for mine. Christ took my curse that I might inherit his life. So Jesus died on the cross, and as he was on that cross, the Bible says, God the Father hath made him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He punished Christ for our sin. He took your sin and my sin, and he laid it on Christ, and he poured out his wrath for that sin on Jesus on that day. Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And yet we know that What Christ did on that day was a completed work. Crying out just before he gives up the ghost, it is finished. The work has been done. What work? What was finished on that day? Redemption was finished on that day. But it didn't end there. As we'll consider more next week. The Bible says Jesus spent three days in the grave after which he rose again from the grave. Next week, we're going to consider why it is so important that we understand the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is important about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The Cliff Notes version is this. If Jesus is dead, he cannot save me. If I can go worship at his bones, the eternal life he promised me is not mine if he doesn't even have it for himself. But if Jesus rose from the dead, if he conquered death, if he conquered sin, if he conquered the grave, he can do everything he said he could do. And what has he promised he could do for me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. 
But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you have not done that today, if you are not under the blood of Christ, if you have not exchanged his robes for yours, Christ has taken your sin. The payment has already been made. But if I were to take this Bible and I were to buy it for you and I were to write your name in it and it's bought and it's paid for and it's got your name in it and I were to hold it out to you and say, I want you to have this gift and you looked at it and you said, wow, that's really, really great and you walked out of this church and you did not take it out of my hand, doesn't matter if it's got your name in it, doesn't matter if it's already paid for, it's not yours unless you take it. And on the authority of the word of God, you must accept that which Christ has paid. He has paid the penalty. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, 1 John 2, 2 says, but also the sins of the whole world. He has paid for your sin. But will you accept the gift? Will you accept it for yourself? Setting aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to make yourself right with God and putting your faith solely and exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. The finished work of Jesus Christ alone to be your righteousness so that you come to him and he takes your sin and he clothes you in his righteousness, not so that you are innocent. If I'm standing before that same judge who says, I see, Mr. Wickler, you're guilty. And I say, yes, sir, I am guilty, but shouldn't my good outweigh my bad? The judge is going to say no. But what if that same judge said, however, Mr. Wickler, there was someone that sat in a cell and they sat in that cell and they had never done anything wrong, had never even gotten so much as a speeding ticket, but they sat in a cell. And here's the thing. If you will accept it, we will take the time that he spent in jail and we will apply it to your crime. You will not be innocent of your crime, but you will be declared not guilty because someone else has paid it for you. You're not innocent, but you're declared not guilty. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. I am not innocent. You are not innocent. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty. But through Jesus, we can be declared not guilty because he took for us our sin on the cross. He paid for it. He satisfied God's justice so that as the scriptures tell us, God may be both just and justify the ungodly. That's you. That's me. We are the ungodly. At least until we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you've never done that today, would you make today the day? However, the majority that I speak to today are believers. Most of us are not out of Christ. We have accepted Christ as our Savior. We have come to the place where we have recognized that Jesus is our Savior, that we cannot save ourselves, and we have fled to the cross of Christ for salvation. And the question I have for you today is, how well are you doing as a subject of the King? In Jesus' day, he looked over Jerusalem, and he said unto them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? And his last words were, and ye would not. It isn't that Jesus wasn't willing to gather them. Not willing to save, not willing to comfort, not willing to guide, not willing to reign. It's that they were unwilling to have him, to receive him. Now, yes, there's a 
There's a lesson there for those who are outside of Christ, but there's a lesson for we who are in Christ as well. The lesson of the triumphal entry is that from the beginning of creation, God's blessing has always fallen upon those who are willing. From the beginning of creation, God's blessing has always fallen upon those whose hearts was positioned, were positioned in humility to receive, to trust, and to obey. And so the question I ask when I think of the triumphal entry, the question that's been running through my mind for the last couple of weeks, which is why I put this down uh, for you this morning, that maybe you can receive benefit from the thing that's been running through my mind, is that when Jesus went through in that triumphal entry, he proclaimed himself to be who he was. He proclaimed himself to be that king. He offered to them that opportunity, and they said, who is this guy? And they moved on with their lives. And his multi the multitude cried, Hosanna to the son of David, and the scribes and the Pharisees were displeased. And they rejected him. And after all of the woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites of Matthew chapter 23... At the end, Jesus says, the things that are happening, that will happen, they are not happening because I wanted them to happen. They're happening because you were unwilling to receive me. Because your heart was not predisposed to listen and to receive. Am I willing to position my heart in humility to trust and obey this morning? Are you willing to position your heart in humility to trust and obey? You might have a lot of knowledge of the Bible. Maybe you come to resurrection and you roll your eyes and say, oh boy, here we go, right? Preach on the passion, preach on the stone being rolled away. Maybe you've become even a little bit cynical to it because you've heard it all before. So you've got a lot of knowledge. Paul said, Knowledge puffeth up, a charity edifieth, right? But let me ask you this. Your knowledge that you have, the things that you know of the word of God, the things that you understand of Jesus, the things that you understand of his commands, have you received those on God's terms or your terms? See, Jesus entered into that city on that cult in, in answer to that prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 and, and Jerusalem said, uh, he's not coming on our terms. We're not interested. And so Jesus says the kingdom of God will be stripped from you and given to another. Now, I'm not warning you about, uh, about the kingdom of God being stripped from you. If you're a believer, we believe that you're safe, kept in grace. That when you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not holding on to God. God's holding on to you. That's not what I'm warning about today. What I'm warning about is us becoming what uh, Revelation uh, speaks of with the Laodicean church, lukewarm Christians. Christians who say, I am rich, and I have need of nothing. And we can say that materially. But we can also say that spiritually. You acknowledge Jesus as God, but are you willing to really live with him as Lord? Or are you trying to live on your own terms? And there's another time where God spoke to this idea of the Lord's capacities but his inability to live in the fullness of the blessings of God, uh, of, of, uh, his, God's capacities, but his inability to live in the fullness of his own power toward his people because of their disposition toward him. I don't know if that made sense. In Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, we read this. 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. Neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Next week, we consider the glorious and victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's appropriate that this next week would be a week of preparation in our hearts. And as we uh, take this week and we take advantage of the idea of preparing ourselves for, for, for this joyous remembrance of the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, you know the Savior. But are you living in that place where his, his hand is shortened and his ear is heavy, not because he cannot hear, not because he cannot work in your life, but because your disposition, your heart toward him is one of coldness. Perhaps you find that your relationship with Christ lacks the blessedness which we ought to expect. That when we read the New Testament and there is this pattern of joy and of delight and of expectation and of hope, and of love, and of peace. And you're not experiencing that. Not that everything is, is, is going well. Not that there aren't hardships. God, Jesus never promised that there, there would be no hardships, uh, that we'd be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But the question is, are you able to sing with, with the hymnists when we sing it as well, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Can you sing that this morning genuinely? That as we considered last week, Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Can you say that genuinely? And if, genuinely? And if not, the question is why? If that isn't you today, the lesson of the triumphal entry on this Palm Sunday is a lesson of the will. There are any number of possible reasons why God might feel far away from us at any given point in time, and not all of them have to do with sin. God can feel far away because we get tired, because we get discouraged, because we're going through trials, like Job in the day where he felt as though the heavens were made of brass and his prayers weren't making it to God. But what we know in those times is that though God might feel far away, we recognize in the spirit of Psalm 23, which we talked about a few weeks ago, that idea of, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But if there is truly something between you and God this morning, something that is not just discouragement because of trials or the, the, the feelings that you know are not true because your heart is right with God and you're doing what's right before Him and you're right with the brethren and, and, and you just know that what, what you're going through right now is a trial and, and though there feels to be that distance, you, yet you know that His rod and His staff are there and they're comforting you. If there's something else, if you are asking God to meet you on your terms rather than His terms, Well, here's something else that we know in confidence. That if someone has moved in the relationship between you and God, it's not God. If something stands between you and your God, it is not God who put that thing there. How often would God have gathered us to himself, but it still rests upon ourselves to be willing. It is still our choice whether or not we will submit or resist that mighty hand. 
And so we know that Jesus is the king. He came in on the colt. He proclaimed himself to be that king. Hosanna to the son of David. We recognize it to be so. We at Legacy Baptist Church acknowledge it to be so. For most of us, we've received that king unto ourselves. We have been made heirs to that kingdom. We have acknowledged Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. But might you actually still fall under Jesus' words? How often would I have gathered you and ye would not? Is Jesus actively on the throne of your heart this morning? Or have so many other ideas, other priorities... Other desires cluttered that space so that there's no room left for him unless he comes to you on your terms rather than his. And he calls out to you and he says, I'm here, but you will not. Next Sunday is the most exciting Sunday of the year for we who are in Christ as a memorial. A memorial intended to be filled with tremendous joy and gladness. And it ought to be in each of our hearts. But if it's going to be, it will only be to the extent that that victory that we'll sing about next week and that victory that we'll consider next week, it will only be the extent that that victory is living itself out in our hearts. So are you living in that victory today? We know this is what Christ wants for us. We know that He is willing. There's no question that he is willing. He has proved that he is willing by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. The question is, are we willing? Let us not allow anything in our lives to stand between us and our relationship with Jesus Christ. Let us not be as those who, though God has reached out his hand to us, though he has desired to pour his favor upon us, he has already shown how much he desires to do that in Jesus. We are standing in the heavenlies, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, and yet we are cutting short his blessing because we have demanded that God comes to us on our terms rather than his. Or are we listening this morning? Are we willing this morning? Is our heart in a position of humility to receive with gladness that which he has brought, even if that which he brings to us is not necessarily that thing which makes the most sense to us, which is the easiest for us, which is the path of least resistance, and yet it is that path of blessing. Why? Because that place where we have aligned with Christ will always be the place of blessing. How often he says, would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not on that day. May we not have that same disposition this morning. May we instead be those who receive him with gladness on his terms and not ours in order that we might live in the fullness of the joy and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.